Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, veteran biographer and bio member Kitty Kelly interviews Paulina Bren, an award-winning author and Vassar College historian. Bren's latest book, The Barbizon, The Hotel That Set Women Free, was published by Simon & Schuster in March 2021. Paulina Bren takes a deep biographical dive into the history of the iconic Barbizon Hotel, which, starting in the late 1920s, housed women who asserted their independence by searching for fame and fortune in New York City. Dr. Paulina Bren, may we begin with how you decided to write a biography of a hotel? Yes, how did I decide to do this, especially since I'd written two academic books about communism and everyday life behind the Iron Curtain? Well, I confess part of me uh, was excited to write something that was an American topic. I thought, oh, wonderful, it'll all be in English and I won't have to read in another language. You know, if you're in New York, one hears of the Barbizon. So I found that to be sort of a very interesting topic to consider. And then I was really interested with in this one scene in Sylvia Plath's Bell Jar, which is entirely based on her time at the Barbizon when she goes or rather her protagonist who's really her Esther she renames herself and she renames the Barbizon the Amazon and she goes to the roof of the hotel and throws her entire wardrobe over the side of the hotel onto the street below and she really did do this and when you consider the letters she wrote home prior to in the couple of months that she was preparing to go to New York to the Barbizon to be an intern at Mademoiselle magazine, she was filled with elan and so excited about it. And she was uh, clothing crazy and she was curating a wardrobe and spending a lot of money doing that. So knowing that she threw that all out at the end of her time tells you something about her time at the hotel so I thought that was really fascinating. And so I, I loved the idea of writing about this hotel and ultimately became, I suppose, a biography of a hotel that is the story of New York, that is the story of women in America through the 20th century. You decided to write about the hotel and not Sylvia Plath, although she is the central character in this book. Why did you decide on the hotel and not a biography of Plath? I'm not sure she would seem that central if she weren't so famous, but because I, I wasn't interested in Plath as such, I was interested as a historian in a particular time and a vehicle for writing about that time. And that vehicle was the Barbizon. The happy accident, so to speak, was that Sylvia Plath lived there, Joan Didion lived there, Grace Kelly lived there, and so forth. But also a lot of unfamous women lived there, and they in many ways tell as much of, if not better, a history of women in the 20th century. 
You know, Dr. Brand, I put your book down and I was so grateful I wasn't born in that time. <laughs> because in one sense, it's very sad about those women. They checked into the hotel, hoping for a glamorous career, short-ended. Because if you didn't marry by a certain time, it's almost like if you didn't shoot your deer in season, you were out. <laughs> yes. I'm glad you actually bring this up because I, I've had friends who have read the book and have said that they felt incredibly sort of sad, bereaved after reading it. And I should say, people say they can't put it down. So I'm not trying to say it's unreadable, but they picked up exactly on what you picked up. And it really does vary. I think it varies. I've noticed generationally in readers, but women of a certain age tend to find the story itself sad, sort of there go I, but for, you know, and I think what you're saying is absolutely true. In the, in the chapter where I write about how Gail Green comes back two years after being at the Barbizon Hotel as one of these interns at Mazel Magazine, and she comes back to the New York Post as an investigative reporter, and she investigates the lone women, as she calls them, the women who are not glamorous, who don't have multiple dates and so forth, who are living in the hotel, feeling very disappointed by the experience. But I would say exactly what you point out, that even those who were glamorous, even those who succeeded, particularly the case of the 1950s. Yes. But you can start seeing it in the late 40s, and it goes well into the 60s as well. This idea that you can have sort of the chutzpah to make your way to New York to try to act on your ambition because women's ambition is timeless. It's not tied down to women's rights. And so you go there to act on your ambition. You will succeed or you will not succeed, but either way, your sell-by date during this era is very, very short or quick. By your mid-20s, you should be married. Did you have a research assistant? How did you find former residents of the Barber Zone who weren't so famous? Um, <laughs> I wish I had a research assistant. You know, as a historian who's written books as an academic, I have to confess I'd feel a little bit strange if I would have a real research assistant who does research. I've had students who I sort of ask, can you go, you know, find out about this? Or can you go get those books from the library and so forth? But it's a little bit different, I think, than what you mean. And it's a really good question. How did I do this research? Because when I came to the project and I decided that I would indeed veer away from my academic topics and write about something that would be enthralling for a larger audience, I thought this was going to be easy. I really thought I would sort of dance into the New York Historical Society archives and ask for the folder on the Barbizon, which they do have. But what they handed me was a very thin folder with about 10 Xerox New York Times articles about the Barbizon. Oh. So the research took a long time because I just go through these periods of saying there's nothing out there. And I discovered other people had sort of wanted to write the book. Um, somebody, a really wonderful filmmaker, she had worked on a documentary about the Barbizon for years, done interviews and everything, and finally just abandoned the project. So 
what sort of kept me going was actually my agent who kept saying, no, 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 keep pushing. You're going to find something, you're going to find something. And it really was a case of that. And, and I say it was difficult because there are no original sources left, meaning there are no guest registries. There is no correspondence. All those things that you know we would like to see in order to write a history, a story, they don't exist. And as I've said before that, I can imagine this was in some ways an accident of history in that the hotel, once it started to go through its many renovations in the 1980s for about 20 years, I can imagine some construction worker who was gutting certain areas, which just found a file cabinet, tossed it onto the sidewalk, and it was just thrown out. The other question, though, is, you know, why was that allowed to happen? Why did somebody come and say before renovation, no, we need to preserve all of this? And of course, I think the reason is because it was a hotel for young women from all over America who would come to this hotel, as I said, to try to create an independent life for themselves for however short a period of time. And it wasn't seen as important. And much of women's history is that way, that those remainders of it that us historians rely on don't exist and you have to sort of dig them up in a different way. And so in my case, sort of a saving grace, and you see that if you read the book, was um, a pathway for many of these residents was through the Mademoiselle Magazine internship program, which was sort of the most competitive contest for women from the early 1940s all through the end of the program in 1979. And through that, all these women, some of them became famous, some did not, were sort of channeled into the Barbizon and spent the month of June there. And for them, it was a very important time in their lives. So also in finding these women, they also had great recollection of that time. And they did, in some cases, have letters, have photographs. So they were really a saving grace in terms of research. Um, I know the hotel was started for women in 1928 and men were allowed in when? In 1981. So you had your time period set for you, but did you work from a chronology? How did you start this? It is a biography of a place. And that was intentional because it's the only vessel that takes us through a long stretch of the 20th century, really from 1927, when the hotel started to be built to the mid 2000s when it became a luxury condo where Ricky Gervais now lives. So this was what gave me the stretch because this was a residential hotel, but it meant women stayed for a few days, they stayed for a few months, they stayed for a few years. So you can't really track one person through that entire time of the hotel's existence, but you can track the existence of the hotel and see it as the receptacle for changing attitudes, a changing clientele, changing sort of ideologies, changing assumptions, and sort of these women telling that story within the vessel of the hotel that does have exactly, as you say, its own chronology. How did you arrange your material? As you say, chronologically, because I do think at the beginning, somebody said, well, you could arrange it by floors and everything. That wouldn't have been possible because the sources aren't there for that. 
Um, it would have been interesting, but for that, you really do need those kind of sources, as I say, that are, that are missing or gone or have been thrown out. But also, even if I'd had that opportunity, I wanted to tell a much bigger story. So the hotel is built in the 1920s when there were all these women's residential hotels being built in New York after World War I, after the women had gotten the vote. A residential hotel as a concept had existed for about two decades prior to this. They were usually geared toward bachelors, toward men. In some cases, there were family residential hotels, but they were posh, they were modern. And they were certainly for the middle, upper middle, wealthy classes to inhabit. But the idea was you had these opulent public areas and the rooms were, in some cases they were grand. In the, in the case of the Barbizon, they were far less than a grand. I mean, they were little tiny cubicles, but certainly the public areas were opulent. And so these hotels were being built for women by the same hotel developers who saw a new clientele, a new profit to be made. And most of them didn't survive the Great Depression. So the Barbizon was among those that did, and I think in many ways because it pivoted. And in a sense, this is why the story gets interesting, I think, because when it was built, it was intentionally built for young women with ambitions for careers in the arts. So from the get-go, it was built with music studios, art studios, performance spaces. But it was clearly not only a hotel that was white, of course. I mean, we're talking about 1928 opening on the Upper East Side, even though that's sort of Irish town, Yorkville at the time. But this is built clearly for the middle, upper middle classes, upper classes. And for the one year it exists prior to the great crash, it's definitely advertising itself that way. And so much so that all these elite women's college alumni clubs rent out floors, they rent out rooms, they create all sorts of things there. So you can see what the intention is and what it's becoming. And then the great depression hits. And these same women now coming to New York to the Barbizon for a year after college to have fun, all of that changes radically, suddenly. And now they're coming to the Barbizon, but they're coming in order to make a living. And so the facade is still there, the pink salmon brick, sort of the neo-Gothic look. I was just giving a talk at the Skyscraper Museum a couple of days ago, and the wonderful woman who introduced me and she made a wonderful point. She found this article from Architectural Digest from when the hotel opened and she pointed out how castle-like, how fairy tale the hotel was intentionally built to look as. Also and quite feminine. Yes, all of that was there. So the facade remains, but what starts to happen behind that facade is very different because of the changes that take place in America, in New York, in terms of what is expected of women and so forth. It really is a capsule of history, and especially for feminist history. Could you talk a little bit about how you got the contract? Did you have to write an extensive proposal? Because as you said, this was a different direction yes. for you. It was. It's such a different world, the trade book world versus the academic book world. It's funny, actually, after I finished the research for the Barbizon, I emailed my agent. And I said, so 
do I start like writing the book now? She said, no, <laughs> you know, you, you write a book and then that's what you sell in the academic book world. In the trade book world, you sell the book proposal. You don't sell the book. And that's done apparently partially so editors can sort of step in and help shape it. You know, if they really like the first three chapters, they can have you sort of make that the book and expand on it. But it's really interesting because you're selling a book proposal. It's not a five-page book proposal. I mean, mine was an 85-page book proposal. I understand that that's how it has to be in this current publishing atmosphere. You have to submit a sizable proposal. Yeah, but I think that's been the case for quite a while, actually. And there's something to be said for it. Because in my case, because I hadn't written a trade book before, I felt I had to write about a five-page beginning sample for every chapter. And it helps you sort of think out the book in a way. It's not a bad tool, I have to say. It really isn't. And, you know, I was very fortunate. There was a big auction for the book. Oh, yeah. So that was really nice. Wonderful. I I know. And it was funny because uh, my agent kept saying, you know, this doesn't happen often. You need to just enjoy every moment. And it was delightful. And I should say I'm I'm lucky because I just sold another book also in auction. Oh, how wonderful. book, Book proposal. I should say book proposal. And it's really interesting because for years people have been saying, from my academic books, you know, you're such a good writer, you should try to write a trade book. And and I guess I hadn't realized how easy the crossover can be. Honestly, I didn't write the book so differently that if I were writing an academic book, I'll be honest, everything was footnoted. That's where I had a research assistant, a recently graduated student uh, turned my regular footnotes into what's called trailing notes, but it's the same thing. So I didn't feel there was a huge difference. The enjoyable part for me is I do love to write. And so writing a trade book, you you really have an excuse to really dig into storytelling. So talk a little bit about the auction in that you submitted your proposal to your agent. Mm. Then your agent sent it out to publishers or how did she do that? As I say, and it's been happening like this for decades. So yes, a book proposal and then your agent sends it to various editors that they think might be interested and you get rejections and you get interest. And then if the editors want to uh, talk to you, on the one hand, they want to sell themselves to you. On the other hand, they want to see that you can speak clearly about your topic, especially I think if you're an academic. So the Barbizon auction was pre-COVID, so we weren't doing Zoom yet. So there were phone calls. And then there's an auction and that's how it works. Talk to us about your writing schedule. Once you did all your research or did you continue researching as you were writing? I was teaching and directing the women's studies program at Vassa the year. You get a year to write the book in the trade world. So it's a very quick turnaround. So I told my editor, Simon Schuster, I'm sending you a chapter at the end of every month. Do not read it. But this way, it's just I need to know that I have to send in a chapter at the end of every month. So that's what I did. And then once I collected the chapters, then I did a a whole big rewrite. And that was my first draft manuscript. 
And my editor, who is absurdly young, but absurdly brilliant, she did what a real editor should do, which is that she had this ability to look at the whole manuscript and sort of envision it as a whole and sort of point to what that whole is. Because when you're in the trenches there writing, it's very hard to see the whole. And that's such a gift to have and to be able to give to a writer, I have to say. How did you first know about the Barbizon Hotel? You know, you hear about the Barbizon, Sylvia Plath's connection to the Barbizon, the bell jar being about the Barbizon. I mean, it's always been in the air, but all these other hotels, of course, like the Chelsea Hotel, are landmarks in New York. And even though people knew about the Barbizon, it just wasn't landmarked in the same way. But it's always been in the air. So I'm glad I finally got to write that history. A lot of the women, obviously, that I was interviewing were in their 70s, 80s. Um, I flew out to California to interview this 96-year-old who became editor-in-chief in 1970. And she passed away a couple of months later. And it was often sort of a race against time. I really wanted to talk to somebody who had been there during World War II. It was very hard to locate somebody. I finally did. She wasn't well. Her daughter and I kept corresponding. I was going to visit on a Sunday and her daughter wrote, said, I'm so sorry. Her grandchildren came as a surprise visit. I said, no problem. And I was going to come on Tuesday. And it was great. Her grandkids visited because she died a couple of days later. So in that sense, like the Barbizon history had to be written around now. Otherwise, those stories would be gone. They would indeed. Do you find that this is a book particularly directed to women? I think so, though men are certainly reading it and getting something out of it. But so much of history, especially trade book history, I think focuses on men and we don't even realize it. Somebody said to me, wait, there are no men in your book? I was like, well, here and there. But it's a history of these women who came to the Barbizon. But speaking of readers, I have to say, that's been a delight because I also had to brace myself for a year prior to publication because I knew once the book came out, that's when I'd get those stories that I desperately wanted, right? So knowing that I really had to sort of psychologically prep myself and it has happened and it's just been delightful. I mean, it's just actually been sort of cherry on the cake for me to receive emails, many of them really fascinating or heartfelt. You could almost do a second book. People have said that, and I really could. I'm not doing it, but I really could. I, I'm still playing with the idea of maybe doing an article or a story about that. But Why wouldn't you include those in your paperback edition? Because you can't. It's all about formatting. They've set the formatting. They've set the page numbers. You don't want to mess with that. So probably in like a second edition, you could. Honestly, I don't know how it works. But there's a lot I would like to include. I mean, for example, the editor-in-chief of Mademoiselle Magazine, who was editor-in-chief from 1935 to 1970, Betsy Talbot Blackwell, who plays a huge role in, in the book and was just a powerhouse, was an incredible woman. And... Her granddaughter wrote to me last week saying that I basically gave her grandmother back to her. I had last week also a writer sent a note that he wrote or compiled this book called Hollywood Heydays. 
and it was based on when he was I think about 17 a friend and he they went around interviewing Hollywood greats so in my book I write about how then no men were allowed beyond the lobby and that was really important because respectability meant freedom for much of the 20th century for women so as sort of nunnery-esque that seems it did provide a certain form of freedom by men not being allowed beyond the lobby but of course many men claimed that they had gotten to the bedrooms you know past the lobby and there's certainly many stories of them dressing up as sort of doctors on call and, and so <laughs> so in this interview with Milton Berle Milton Berle says that in the 1930s he did get up there to one of the bedrooms to visit his girlfriend so to speak because he went to a costume shop and he dressed up in drag and of course, this is an amazing foreshadowing to the sitcom from, I think it was 1990s. And it was based on the idea that two men to find affordable housing in New York, they dress up as women to live in a women's residential hotel. So- <laughs> Speaking of foreshadowing, I wonder, can you draw the connection between a convent situation and the Barbizon Hotel? Absolutely. And often people said that about the Barbizon. There were women who enjoyed it, other women who said they wouldn't go near it because it was exactly a glamorous convent. But there wasn't a curfew unless you are Catherine Gibbs, secretarial student, where they created uh, three floors as a dorm. And they were very strict. They had um, house mothers. They had to wear gloves. They had to wear hats. They couldn't take those off in the subway, nothing. They had curfews. Nobody else had curfews. So there was a sort of, you know, a certain amount of freedom. But certainly this whole issue of a women's only hotel being like a nunnery really came to the fore, of course, in the 1960s. When you start to see these major social movements, you know, liberation movements, civil rights movements happening, and women start to have more options. And they say, why would I stay here? Then in the 1970s, New York starts to just sort of look like it's falling apart. Nobody wants to live there. The Barbizon Hotel looks like it's falling apart. So you have sort of a double whammy. You have women saying, why would I stay in a place like this? And you have a rundown hotel. So at that point in 1981, the hotel owners say, we have to open this up to men. How did you get your interviews? It's interesting. It was somewhat difficult to convince the women around Sylvia Plath who'd been there with her for them to talk. Even though so many years had gone by. Well, because the way they'd been represented in the past, they were very unhappy with it. Probably the most, for me, the most important hurdle was um, when the book was done and before it becomes a book, they sort of create a dummy book. It looks exactly like the book. And I sent a copy of the dummy book to every woman that I had interviewed And of course, that was, to me, the most important audience. What would they say? Because when you do contemporary history, where people who lived it still live, and they can contradict you and say, it wasn't like that. And that's a historian's worst nightmare, at least it is mine. And so that's always been very important to me. And it was so great because all of them, not only did they really love the way that they were represented and they felt it was true to who they were, but they said that for the first time, They understood decisions they had made, which they'd sort of had been bothering them over the course of their life. And seeing it now in the context of the Times, the hotel, America, through this pull of the 20th century, they understood their own decisions much better. 
And that was really, for me, probably the most important response. Thank you very, very much. Uh, Absolutely, Kitty. That was author and historian Paulina Bren, speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Kitty Kelly about her book, The Barbizon, The Hotel That Set Women Free, published by Simon & Schuster in March 2021. This interview was recorded online via Zoom on November 5th of last year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day.